prefer them giving me a short presentation of a few minutes with one point I can remember. Right, so, so that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to, it won't be a few minutes, right? But um, I'm going to give you something that you can remember by only telling you what I can remember. Right, so that's, I think it's a good system now. In my pocket, I've got my backup notes. Right, just in case. I thought, what if I get nervous and the line goes blank? Right, so I've got my notes. Um, which I might, you know, that's, that's, I think that's still acceptable. So, I'll only tell you what I can remember in, in some kind of order. So, let me start with, so the topic is the politics of evidence-based policy making. So, I mean, I, I, I tend to focus on how these things are described in the UK, but the, the topic should be general enough to be applicable in the US as well. Let me start with the title. So, I, I used to read this, um, there's this great uh, website by Patrick Dunleavy in the LSE, in which he pretty much tells you how to write a PhD. And one of his big things is that you, you have to make your paper titles tell the audience exactly what you're saying. You know, don't, don't, nothing, nothing too cryptic, no detective novels. So, I really took that on board and I started writing this and I was really pleased with this for a while and the, the title started off as if you want to inject science into policy making you have to know the science of policy making or something like that. So I think that sums up uh, what I'm talking about who the audience is which is um, scientists, often natural scientists who express regular disenchantment with the policy process because they say we know what the evidence is on particular problems, we know the evidence on the solutions, so why don't policymakers do anything with it? So this huge evidence policy gap. So that, that was the, the intention there. And, I, and that's an important point, I think, because I'm going to tell you some things that you're likely to know already. But the point is that people outside our discipline don't know. Okay. So the publisher didn't like that title. <laughs> too long, I guess. So they went for the more enigmatic, the science of policymaking. And I quite like that because it does remind me a little bit of the kind of post-war discussions, which was about making the policy process more scientific, bringing in more quantitative or systematic methods to, to you know, improve policy analysis. But um, in the run-up to finishing the book, um, I was publicizing some of this stuff on Twitter. And someone tweeted me, he must have known who I was. I'm not saying I'm the big I am, but he must have known that I was a professor of politics. And he still tweeted me to say, well, don't you know that this is a really political process? Why are you describing it as scientific? Right, so I thought the, the science of policy making was too subtle. Right? So that's why it's the politics of evidence-based policy making. And I, and I recommend that, you know, a nice, um, straightforward title that people can Google and, and find. So I, so I reckon it won't be long before if you Google scholar, those words, or you Google those words, mine is going to be right at the top. And that's probably the main thing. Okay. And that's the turn. Okay. So the second part of that is, let me tell you, there's some, there's some distinctive aspects to the UK political process. And one of them just now is this idea of impact. So, we, we are um, assessed 
as universities and departments every seven years according to the quality of our four best publications. But 20% of that assessment is on the impact we have outside the academy. So if you look at the way we're supposed to construct these case studies, we produce empirical research, and that research has to have some effect on some tangible group of people. There has to be a linear process, cause and effect. Now, I mean, I think, I think most of us studying policy processes will, will recognize that's highly problematic. The idea that there's such a linear uh, relationship between evidence and policy. So that's, that's the other context here. Uh, and I think, that, so that, that, that kind of sums up the start, which is, I was quite struck by how concepts and insights that we would now increasingly take for granted uh, are not particularly well known in other places. Some parts of the scientific community, people who write self-government reports. That's the second piece of context. I'm sure there's another one. <laughs> uh, my notes are failing me here. <laughs> ah, okay, no, right, okay, I do remember. So, um, there was a process here. I mean, this is interesting in itself. Uh, this, this came up. I saw this gap to sort of consolidate our knowledge when I was peer reviewing this article in a health science journal. And in fact, it turned out to be two articles. And it was a systematic review of the literature on the barriers between evidence and policy and health. And it was open peer review. So uh, the authors knew that I was doing it, and I knew who the authors were. And actually, I would really recommend that because you have to be remarkably polite. Because <laughs> uh, it's, all, it's all out there, all my comments are out there. So it also allowed us to start talking to each other. Because I figured, you know, if I'm reviewing this article, we may as well have a conversation rather than me write notes. So that led to me working with one of the authors, Catherine Oliver. And in fact, we're now working with um, Adam Wellstead on so we've got an article coming out in PAR on, on this kind of thing as well. But this original article was interesting because it pretty much said there are about 125 relevant articles on this subject and almost none of them talk about any policy theories. And when they do, they talk about the policy cycle or comprehensive rationality as if these things existed. Right, so there's double, double naivety I would suggest. So there's a gap in the market there to, to uh, at the very minimum, present insights from policy studies to scholars who are interested in the policy process but do not have the background or the training. So that was the, was all the context. Now in my head that would have taken about 30 seconds, but there you go, that, that gives you a guide how long this will take. So, key points. I mean the first point is, it takes us back to, I don't know if you, if you start studying this topic, you would start with ideal types, you know, what is comprehensive rationality? and therefore what is bounded rationality, uh, what is a policy cycle, and what alternatives are there? So that you start off saying, well, these are what, this is what doesn't happen. So what, what do sort of modern policy theories tell us about what does happen instead? So, I mean, that's an interesting thing for me to go back and essentially have to explain what most of us would take for granted and not even include in, in particular articles. You know, you wouldn't, I don't think, 
many times if you submit an article similar to PSJ, you would mention the false assignment. I don't know, maybe you would. You would, you would maybe mention bounded rationality, but you would use that term as a shorthand and assume people knew all the, the background of it. So yeah, that's interesting in itself. So you know, a lot of the book is, is about explaining why uh, it's problematic to think that you should, you should aim for the ideal of comprehensive rationality, for example. You should, you should try and think of a kind of linear set of stages. Now, that feeds directly into, uh, there are two chapters in this book. One is on health science, and one is on environmental science. So the, the, the things that connect them includes, you know, the fact that they contain advocates who want to go beyond science and propose particular policy solutions. So, you know, in public health, you have people who are advocates for tobacco, alcohol control. In environmental scientists, you have people who want to take this information and advocate um, mitigation or adaptation. And they're, they're, they contain camps that are experts in their field but frustrated with their lack of influence in those cases. Now, um, the, the interesting thing for health is that in policy sciences, you would often say, well, you know, uh, the cycle or comprehensive rationality. That's an ideal type, and it's not necessarily an ideal, you know, it's just something to compare through world. Now, in evidence, there is an ideal type, which is an ideal, which is evidence-based medicine, you know, which is the sense that we know what the best evidence is. So it's not just um, you know, the use of any evidence. When people are talking about frustration with getting evidence into policy, it's scientific evidence, and it's particular forms of scientific evidence. So at the top of this hierarchy, you have randomized controlled trials and the systematic review of randomized controlled trials. So when they're specifically identifying a gap, it's of the uptake of these things. It's not evidence in general. Okay, so the interesting thing for me is a lot of this literature talks about the barriers to getting evidence into policy solutions. And most of them are about the supply of information. So they say, well, uh, you know, we need to produce evidence more quickly. We have to do it in shorter reports. We have to do it in a, uh, you know, a kind of more accessible language. And we maybe have to use knowledge brokers who can, you know, who can translate or find who's And to my mind, this addresses one aspect of bounded rationality, which is that when policymakers have to make decisions quickly based on limited information, they still do it in a, in a so-called rational process. You know, they set goals, they use shortcuts to find out the best sources of information, the best people to speak to. So I think almost all of this literature is focused on that, the reduction of uh, policymaking uncertainty by reducing scientific uncertainty. And you could see, you know, that, that this is, this, I suppose this is a bit Herbert Simon, like, you know, trying to get closer and closer to the ideal of, you know, uh, you know perfect rationality. But I think what it doesn't capture is that policymakers use two shortcuts, and the second shortcut is much quicker. You know, we talk about um, psychological processes where they use their emotions or their, their gut feeling or habits or norms or beliefs, ideology, to come to very quick decisions about the nature of problems, the people they're trying to 
uh, help or the, you know, the people who deserve you know, punishments or benefits and such. And in, in, instead, we're not talking so much about uncertainty now, we're talking about ambiguity. So policymakers can understand and frame policy issues in all sorts of different ways. So politics is about the ways in which you frame issues to capture attention, you know, to, to turn an almost infinite number of problems or ways of looking at them into a dominant way of thinking and to, you know, to, to um, narrow down an almost infinite number of solutions into a very small amount that we consider. So, that's a process of reducing ambiguity with, with, with framing. And that's a different kind of thing because really you're talking about addressing the demand for information. So I, mean, I think a key point for scientists is you sometimes get the sense from this literature that they're thinking, well, if, if, if only we can get the wording right, you know, if we can get it in a nice report and wait for the right time to present this information, then we'll be doing well. But I think it ignores a sense that policymakers may never pay attention to an issue. And so a lot of um, framing is about generating demand for information rather than providing a, a better supply. So that's the, that's the first key point. Now, I mean, I guess it might sound an obvious point to this audience, but I'm getting a, yeah, I'm getting a decent amount of attention outside of this kind of audience. Um, now, the second thing I think we would say is this, this takes place within, now it's hard to know what to call this, but it takes place within a complex system or a complicated environment. Now, I keep meaning to write down the difference between those two things. Some kind of messy process in which you know lots of things are difficult to understand and process and predict. And I think um, so, Anna, so so when 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 Tonya and I, I were writing up this in 2014, we said this environment has six aspects, right? Now whenever I write about myself I say five, uh, so I've said this before, because you know, you could, yeah, as hard as you can see, I've got this in my hand. It's five, right? You've got to remember the five. You've got to remember, remember the hands, right? So, five. I mean, a lot of to one. So, the five would be focused on actors. And it would be actors within a multi level policy environment. Then we would focus on institutions. Now, I know. Um, I associate this with, and I'm lumping everyone together, I associate this with American discussions where you see institutions are organizations. But you know, when thinking of policy studies, we say an institution is a way to explain regular patterns of behavior with reference to rules and norms. Uh, three, we talk about subsystems or networks. So the relationship between uh, the people who uh, make decisions and the people who influence them or, or something. Then we talk about um, ideas, which can mean anything from uh, the use of policy solutions, the importance of persuasion, and perhaps most importantly, the kind of dominant ways of thinking within systems that are often taken for granted. And then the fifth one, which is really two things, which is, you know, I would say that we call it socioeconomic conditions or context and events. You know, so the things, the background conditions influence how people make decisions. And events such as uh, anticipated events like elections or unanticipated crises or focusing events. 
So I think in each case, this can help you explain the use of evidence within a policy system. So if you go back to that idea of policy cycle, if, if you use the cycle to help you engage in politics, your assumption will be there is a very clear singular point at which a decision is made, and it's made by a notion of center, central government. Because I think that's implicit within like a, a cycle that's a very small number of people that are part of the policy process making these decisions. So if you focus on a messy environment, you say, well, actually, there are there are many, you know, often too many to count, you know, influential actors competing to present or process evidence within a system at many levels of government. So much more messy. Then you would say, well, you know, if, if uh, what you need to focus on is the rules that people use to gather information. So who do they speak to most frequently? Which sources and types of evidence do they, do they prioritize when they only have so much uh, time to, you know, uh, to do things? Then you might say, a focus on networks or subsystems means that you're interested in, again, the rules that people adopt when they decide how they uh, interact with outside bodies. Or in particular theories, you would say, you know, the, the, the rules that some, for example, some coalitions use to interpret information. Then if you focus on ideas, you might say, well, it's important to focus on the, uh, the sort of, uh, now whatever you call it, the sort of, um, the, the sort of hegemonic context, or the, the paradigm in which evidence is presented. So, there are clear, I don't know, when I do this with students, you would say there's no point in presenting a sort of neoliberal uh, market solution in a socialist country. There's no point in presenting a socialist solution in the US. Right? So, I think, so, you know, in the UK, it's always funny to watch the debate on Obamacare, right? Which is, you know, sort of a tenth of the UK's. <laughs> socialist system, and yeah, it, it, it has such a problem. Right. So, you know, so, so the, the point there is, when you're presenting evidence, there's, a, there's, there's clearly an, an, ide, an ideally ideational context in which you're presenting it. So, you know, the same evidence presented in two different arenas will, will have a very different effect. And then you say, well, uh, sometimes events can influence the use of evidence. So. Uh, the obvious one is, is an election brings in a different party of government and it, it produces a new type of receptivity to particular forms of knowledge. Or, you know, I, I, you know, I still like Peter Hall's idea that you, you don't necessarily need a change of government. A government can replace one set of experts with another. So that's, again, the, the same provision of evidence dealt with in, in fundamentally different ways. So that takes us a very long distance away from the idea of a singular point of decision on So, um, the final thing to say before the Q&A is, uh, what do you do with that information? So this is, uh, I'm increasingly fascinated by this idea that um, academics can provide practical knowledge or information. At the start of my career, you didn't have to care about that. You know, you just <laughs> found these things interesting, and then you went home. So, uh, but now we're now we're, we have to have an impact. So, yeah, so uh, the interesting thing for me is that you can take these insights and, and 
not change anything. Because there are two, um, two considerations. One is an ethical one. So essentially, what I'm sort of recommending is that instead of scientists providing, presenting their information as, as objective, high status, they get their hands dirty in politics. They frame issues, they make emotional appeals, they're manipulative, they hold back information. Um, and they do all those things that are associated with kind of shady lobbyists. Now, that's obviously, there's a big ethical question about would you actually recommend this to scientists? Uh, you know, possibly not, you know, or, um, or if you did, or if they did do this, they would lose something um, to get something. Okay, so it's, a not, it's not an easy question to answer. The second thing I think is uh, more practical, which is, uh, you know, if you take on board, um, you know, you get into, say you get into multiple streams and say, well, uh, you know, you talk about entrepreneurs waiting for the right moment, you know, surfers on the big wave or something like that, and who knows when the moment will be. It could be, you know, it could be one year, it could be ten years. Or you say, oh, look at ACF, you're talking about forming non-trivial relationships with um, like-minded actors over a long period. Um, it suggests to me that scientists not only have to produce evidence, and we know that lots of academics work, you know, 60, 70, 80 hours a week. And they have to find time within that schedule to in, you know, invest a lifetime of networks and relationships and wait for the right moment to engage in politics. Now, I don't know how someone can do that. So, in both cases, you're saying, be manipulative, <laughs> uh, be a lobbyist, do it over a 40-year period, because that's the only way you guarantee success. Um, I don't know if anyone it's not, it's not brilliant advice. There's the rub. There's the rub. And so, so, so what I tend to do is, is, is a little cop out at the end, which is to say, what we could, we could reasonably do, particularly in the UK, is say, there's something wrong with an impact agenda in which you have to demonstrate a clear link between your published research and some Because I think that... The, um, the unintended consequence, for example, is that people are going to uh, choose the easy options, which is to demonstrate impact on unimportant people, for example. So, um, I think in the UK, my example would be parliaments. So, a lot of the literature, I read the UK literature, says, well, parliaments, unlike in the US, are fairly peripheral to the policy process. And yet, I think half of our case studies are based on influence parliamentary including me, right? So my case study will be trying to influence the Scottish Parliament when I know that it's peripheral to the policy process because I'm driven by this. Okay, so, I mean, that's not a great way to end, but there you go. You know, it, these insights are important, but who knows what you do. Questions for Paul and an apology. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, You kind of touched on it a little bit there at the end. I'm just going to ask you to speak to maybe the given normative prognosis of the future mm -hmm. of evidence-based policymaking. The reason I ask is because
because you also mentioned earlier in your talk, this evidence-based policymaking idea comes pretty much from medicine where they have evidence-based decision-making. And in that field, you can kind of say, this is the best evidence. We have determined this is the best evidence. And I worry when we talk about evidence-based policymaking, we don't have that same kind of rubric here, this consensus, this, this fundamental, some would say, identity crisis within our whole field, what is good science that we produce. So how can we ever expect to achieve this evidence-based policymaking when we don't even know what evidence is? Yeah, so, um, yeah. This is, a, this is a tricky one, I think. So, um, so I've talked more about evidence-based medicine. So, I, so my impression is now, yeah, we have to be careful, I think, because I think evidence-based medicine started as a way for um, a core group of scientists to present the best evidence on you know, healthcare interventions, because physicians didn't have the time to keep up with the journal. So they say, well, here's the database where you can get quick and, quick and easy um, advice. So it wasn't really about telling people what to do, it was about saying, combine this with your discretions. So that, that, that's a little bit more like uh, policy making, where they say, you could, you could say, well, this is what we think is the best evidence on an issue, uh, but it's up to you to make choices. You know, that kind of system. But I think there is, um, so I have done this other work, which uh, goes into these comparisons about how you use evidence, because the complication, I think, is it's, it's difficult, if not impossible, to separate uh, the um, selection of, a, of an, an evidence-based intervention and the selection of a way to deliver policy on that basis. So, I mean, let me describe this in kind of UK terms. I don't, know, I don't know how you would do this in the US, but um, let's say there's a relationship between central and sub-central bodies and you have to work out the extent to which the center will enforce a uniform delivery of policy or encourage a level of uh, local variation and discretion. So with some interventions based on RCTs, for example, uh, randomized control trials, the, um, the idea is you have to have a uniform intervention because uh, you need the right dosage and you need to have another RCT to measure its effect. So that suggests no local uh, uh, discretion, because you have to adopt the same model. So you would say the center just rolls out the model with no discretion. So that's, I mean, that's that, that's tricky. That, that's got a great kind of evidential hierarchy reason to do it. But it's tricky politically, I think, because we have principles about the relationship between central and subject central governments that you can't ignore. Um, so then, you might think, well, well, how do we do things differently? Now, the, the almost polar opposite is uh, people gather experiential knowledge within local areas. They, they, they favor other forms of evidence, like practitioner knowledge, service user feedback, that sort of thing. And they tell stories of how they think programs go in their, their area. And so this, this goes on quite a lot, I think, and people take videos and say, oh, this is how we, we manage the intervention. And then they encourage other people to learn from their experience and adopt it to local circumstances. So, so that's another way of using evidence, but with no uh, attachment to hierarchy and with no idea that, that, uh, uh, that local variation would be challenged by the need to 
you know, maintain uniformity. Now again, I don't know what you do about that, right? apart from recognize that there are lots of different ways in which to interpret evidence and do something with it. So, I mean, that's actually, I mean, that's, in a sense, that's, I've taken 40,000 words to say, which is, you, you know, uh, it, it sort of requires a degree of humility from scientists to recognize the position they, they are within a policy process. Well, this, this can be related to their ideology or their um, programs for government before they enter office. Um, I mean, I suppose, yeah, so, I mean, in those cases, if, if a government comes into office with a clear uh, set of solutions that it wants to introduce, then, then yes, there would be more limited ways in which you could generate a demand for different um, competing efforts. So maybe you wouldn't recommend people try and contradict policymakers. You would want to work within the ways in which they frame problems. I suppose what I'm getting at is we, we talk about a wider process in which um, uh, policymakers respond to issues at relatively short notice. You know, they respond to crises or they uh, respond to you know shifts of public concern or media attention or, or you know interest groups. So, in that sense, you would say, well, you know, advocates of scientific governance would maybe have to think about how that process works, so that they can try and you know manipulate the use of uh, information within it, 
or you try and you set in, isn't something try and try and shift opinion. So uh, I think uh, the, the easy example I, I, I tend to go to is, is tobacco policy. So in that case, kind of long-term agenda has been to frame tobacco as a public health epidemic, just like any other um, your harmful epidemic. So they use the same kind of scary language to describe it. And uh, you know, generate a sense that policymakers have to solve this problem in a small amount of time. So if successful, then those policymakers seek a, a, a evidence or information about the best solutions to that problem. So, I mean, there are examples. Um, uh, I like the example of France, where the president at one point declared a national emergency and said, "We've got to solve the tobacco epidemic now." Sort of thing, you know, and so. You'd be drawing on evidence on the best solutions, like your bands and smoke smoking places. So, I guess that's what we're talking about. Because um, uh, now the only the only drawback is that's a great example of a successful shift in agendas in many countries, uh, but it's taken something like three decades to happen. So, I like to use tobacco as, as that you know it's increasingly used as a model for generating attention to an issue. Uh, you know, uh, you're getting policymakers to shift the way they think of issues and seek different ways. Um, but it's a real cautionary tale as well about how much of an impact you expect any scientific evidence to have. You know, it would have, I think, what Carol Weiss called an enlightenment function. You know, it would take, uh, you know, 10, 20, 30 years to have an impact. And that really contrasts with the idea of uh, what I described the UK as this impact agenda. And I, th and I think um, I think if you didn't have a background in policy studies, I think it would be intuitive to think that when you produce new evidence, someone's going to pay attention to it. Something's going to happen. Yeah. Instead, you have to do something else. Um, the second question. It seemed a bit hard to answer. What effect do you think um, So, I mean, this is, I suppose there's this question about the kind of status of scientists when they can't provide reliable information. Yeah, or if it's proven wrong later, right, yeah, essentially that. Yeah. Um, that's a tricky one, isn't it? I mean, I, I suppose, in general, uh, scientists still have the one of the highest reputations of any profession. I mean, I'm getting, taking up from you know, public opinion type stuff. Mm -hmm. Politicians are down here. Used car salesmen. Salespeople are, um, well, it's men, isn't it? It's men that have done the profession down, down here, and then, you know, scientists have used it somewhere. So, I mean, it's a, I, I think, in, intuitively, I think this would play out on a more personal level. So you have scientific experts within posts, and if, if they are being, if they are seen to be unreliable, that would, that would, that would influence. The extent to which, say, you know, a policymaker had been first, I was going to say first in the speed dial, right? But no, he's an anachronism. Uh, I don't know what they do. What do they do now? Uh, see, I don't really phone anyone, right? But on their list or something like that. Yeah, so that's a favourite. So, okay, so, um, yeah, so it might be that more personal thing. So, so, and that, that really presents a dilemma, doesn't it? Because I was suggesting that we have to, you know, experts within government 
have to be you know, uh, you know, sort of, uh, politically aware and, and find opportunities to be you know, to take chances. And stuff. But at the same time, if they get that wrong, then they're, they're out of the loop. So, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know how to end that. Genetically modified foods came up in the European Union recently because the, the Commission said to member states, uh, it's been a certain amount of years, it's time to reconsider uh, an embargo or a moratorium on GM foods. Do you want to lift it or not? Um, now, the, the Scottish Government said, we want to keep the moratorium. And to all intents and purposes, they said, we want to do that because we want to present an image where our food industry is organic and uh, you know, work classes. And lots of scientific groups were up in arms because they were saying, well, there's, there's minimal risk to GM and you're just not being scientific at all about this. Right? Which seemed to me to be the wrong thing to do because you don't want to, I don't think you're going to win an argument by telling a policymaker they're completely wrong okay. and non scientific. So, you know, so the advice in that kind of sense is you, know, you quietly have conversations where you try and work within. Uh, at those parameters. So, for example, you say, well, okay, you, you don't want to completely lift the moratorium, but, but how about um, well-controlled experiments where we can work out the long-term effects of the risk or something? <coughs> Which is actually, I think, what they are doing quietly. But they'll be undermined. If you imagine, if you imagine um, the same person, knowing they have a conversation about negotiating some nice experiments. An hour before going on TV and saying, "Oh, that's yeah. yeah." So that, so actually, there were a couple of people commenting on this, saying that it's a bit like uh, the old witch. I forget how they came to this. They said it's a bit like the old witch trials, where they're you know they're rejecting science as some you know, scary thing. 
or something. It's just seemed to be the wrong strategy. So I think you could give that kind of pragmatic advice. There's another one, uh, another example where you would want to be aware of uh, unusual frames in which uh, to present information. So um, the example here is, is, is uh, fracking or you know, unconventional oil and gas. Um, we, we, we know the kind of dominant frames which are about you know, the economic costs to development or the environmental health risks. Uh, but in some situations there are unusual frames that you would struggle to have influence without uh, knowing how to operate them. So again in Scotland, I'm not really on the topic of Scotland, but um, in, in Scotland an unusual frame is a nationalistic one, which is there's a tense relationship between uh, the Scottish government and the UK government. And parties do well in Scotland by saying we're going to stand up for Scotland and stop Westminster telling us what to do. So fracking became wrapped up in that. Westminster's trying to force us to frack in Scotland. We're going to do everything we can to push against it. Now you'd have to be aware of that frame of reference as a, as a private company to know how to engage with Scottish ministers. I mean, not exactly sure how you would do it, but you would you would have to show that awareness. I'm curious, Paul, to what extent you, uh, you see your arguments around evidence-based policy making translating into uh, questions around policy oriented. Mm. Uh, do you see this is kind of the same phenomenon, or where to Pick apart some of the literature of yeah. policy learning we use in the same articles. Yeah, I, mean, I, think that, I think that'd be a useful concept yeah. here because you might say, well, um, learning to yes, learning to scientists. I know we're scientists, aren't we? We're mm -hmm. political sci <laughs> scientists. Yeah. I only in UK, I only come to a scientist to annoy, that, you know, health natural scientists. <laughs> so I'm a scientist too. Uh, but um, you would say, you know, some scientists see learning as a process of generating information with well-recognized methods, so RCTs and systematic review. That's, that's how you learn, generate information. Uh, whereas I think we're used to thinking of learning as a political process in which people have well-established beliefs and they use those beliefs as a lens through which to interpret information. I think it's a hard sell to say to scientists that you're you're doing this very thing. You know, you're using a, 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 the lens of scientific belief. I don't know, it's tricky to say scientific belief because you sound like you're anti-science. You know? <laughs> uh, you say, well, this is this is a belief like any other. Or you would you would at least say to scientists, well, there's no point in sticking to this rigid notion of learning because you're going to be interacting with people who learn in a different way and who will be defensive if you tell them they're learning in the wrong way. And, you know, so I think it does tie in quite well. And I, mean, I think to be fair to um, uh, scientists who operate within government, I think most recognize those things, don't they? It's, um, I think it's, it's scientists who spend their time not engaging in politics that don't appreciate those things. 
very clear with the concept of uh, eggplant-based policy making. I try to remind me my, my, my reading of Davis and so on. Mm. That, uh, there are two elements in it. First, producing evidence. I hopefully with scientific methods. Mm -hmm. They still are, and our city is still a scientific method. They're quite reliable, in fact. Mm. But uh, that's the first element. But the second one is to turn evidence into public policy. Mm -hmm. And uh, it seems to me, if I understand well, that there you f fall again in the rationalist method where you set your objectives, you look at the better solution, and then mm. you choose them with a cost-benefit analysis. Is it this rational shift that, that is behind evidence-based policy making to turn evidence into policy, or are there innovative ways? Because that is from the 50s of the past century. Yeah, I mean, so that's the point, I think. Um, so I suppose that's what I was trying to explain at the start, that, um, uh, I think most of us, if not all of us, take for granted that this rationalist way of looking at things is outmoded, um, went out of fashion, and is something that we teach to undergraduates to just to get things started before you say, well, this, this doesn't happen. Like <laughs> I mean, it's actually really handy in that sense. Put up a side quote. Say, oh, look, yeah, like, that looks sensible. Um, and I say, we, we, we were out yesterday, I took this photograph of a spirograph. I don't know, because no one seems to know what a spirograph is. Is this, uh, you know, the, yeah, you know the spirograph? You, yeah. So you, you draw lots of circles. Yeah. yeah. So I like that idea. You say, well, this is a cycle. I see the pulse processes. So I don't know, if you want, if you want to encourage a student, uh, you know, learn by doing a spirograph. So, I mean, that's actually that's what our kids do. Uh, you know, this is an aside. Right? We're going to learn about the, um, you know, the Battle of Culloden. Right? Let's draw some soldiers. Right? That's how you learn. Okay. So, uh, um, yeah. So, so I think yeah. So, so the the kind of rationalist idea is, is is a handy starting point to say, well, this this doesn't happen. And and I think the interesting thing for me is. When you write about evidence-based policy making now, with an audience outside of policy science, you have to start at the point at which you would normally take for granted. So, you would you would you would treat uh, you know well-established professorial natural scientists as these first-year undergraduates. <laughs> which I, I mean, that's, actually, I quite like the idea of doing that. <laughs> yeah, so we actually we didn't get away with it in this last article. They, they got us to take out all that kind of language. Uh, I suppose, you know, you're on a theoretical naive and something. Yeah, so, which I thought was the best bit, right? But, uh, yeah, so, yeah, so, so that's, that's the point. I mean, actually, in the book, I was trying to really go back to first principles, because I think the first thing you do with undergraduates is you say, what is policy? Just to show that you can define it, yeah. So, it's, it's, it's quite fun to do evidence-based policy making, because evidence-based policy, uh, so kind of, there's, there's actually, you multiply before the problems there, you say, what is evidence? Well, unless uh, you, See what I'm trying to come up with a definition of evidence. It's um, something like assertion backed by information. Or something like that. 
and then you say, well, scientific the evidence is a assertion backed by uh, a particularly systematic way to generate information, something like that. So there's, there's evidence based, it's just a metaphor. Actually, when I started thinking about that, you know, it's, you know, it's, it doesn't really mean anything, based. <laughs> because, you know, as you imagine, well, if it's a metaphor, that's like a concrete foundation, something like that. And I think that's how some people are thinking, evidence-based. The foundation is the evidence, the most important bit, and everything else is just uh, peripheral. Um, but it doesn't mean anything. And, and ne neither do other terms, like people, when people say, well, evidence informs what's the I'm not convinced that means anything either. So, so we, so we, we sort of know evidence that says, based as a metaphor, when you say what's policy making, when you say that's, um, I think when you you say what's policy making, it's to identify this inclusion of actors who aren't uh, in formal positions of power. So policy making is done by policy makers. Some policy makers are elected, some are unelected, some are even. And then, <coughs> and then they say, what's policy? Well, who knows, <laughs> uh, right? Because I, I when I teach policy, it's just to, I came up with a definition, but again, it's only to say, well, look how uh, unreliable this definition is. So, put all those things together, what is evidence-based policy making? Who knows? <laughs> uh, but of course you can't, again, since we can't, we have to be, we have to be, uh, you know, uh, we have to have an impact. You have to have a practical, I think you have to have a working definition of that. So, um, I think one is that scientific idea that you're talking about, to what extent is there a gap between the production of scientific evidence and a proportion of policy response? That's how I like to set up some of these things. Or you just say, well, in general, this is a fluid process in which there are lots of people involved. They're uh, generating lots of different kinds of information. Some of it is scientific evidence, but most of it is um, other kinds of practical, experiential knowledge or feedback or public opinion. It all comes together some kind of mess, something happens. So that, that's evidence-based, ultimately. Yeah. Did that, did that answer your question? <laughs> so, so Paul, yeah. on, on, that, so on that, part of the, the, the question is what's driving this whole phenomenon? Because it also has been driven, we could argue, as long as policy's been studied. Right? Laswell talked about the need for bringing good information into uh, the policy making process. And, and and I guess when they say that, really what they're talking about is there's the fundamental need is the need to tame, I guess, politics. Because somehow, for some reason, you know, people perceive the decision making we have as being driven by, I don't know, let's say special interests or something where at least scientists or someone in there is viewing it as undesirable. So therefore, we need evidence based because. We're not making it based on evidence. We're ignoring the evidence. I mean, that seems to be driving part of this. Is that? Yeah. Would you agree with that? Yeah. So. Uh, yeah. That's right. Yeah. Okay. So, so then, the, then the question is, since it hasn't happened for the last 40, 50 years since we've been talking about this in various forms. Yeah. It, it, or maybe we're, we're approaching this from the wrong angle, and that also brings the question: 
why do we even say evidence-based? And, and part of the reason, I think, is because there's a lot of scientists like us out there looking at this, thinking, gosh, there's good evidence out there. Why aren't we doing this? So, for example, if, there, if, if, if a bunch of kids are out there sitting in the policy process, they might come up with a kid-based policymaking and argue that kids aren't represented and the views of, 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 of the younger generations aren't, aren't there. And they, they would argue for lower discount rates of the, or of the future and do all this just because they're not represented. They're all upset about this. And you can kind of play this out elsewhere. And fun comes down to it comes down to the venue. When you think about evidence, it's not the evidence that's there, it's there's like venue. It's like we're playing a soccer match and there's all these kind of experts saying what we should do, but it comes down to it's the players in the field playing the game and the rules of the game and what evidence can inform the coaches to kind of play those rules. And in a way, it's just kind of this peripheral stuff. And maybe the emphasis should be more on the, the, the politics that go into the rules that are playing those, those little venues. Like rulemaking in Colorado, you can bring some information, you can't bring other information. And broaden that information out, um, it'll alter the game inside there. But they can't bring in some information. Court decisions, bringing some information, you can't bring out, can't bring in other information. So all these little venues, Congress, same way. Some information is valued, some is largely determined by the rules of the people. Yeah. So I'm, I'm questioning why I even talk about it in this case. So maybe we should just talk about politics and the rules that structure these games to begin with. Yeah. No, no problem that. Yeah, so, um, <laughs> I mean, I, I'm sorry, okay, because I'm conscious I've written a book yeah. about this, right? Fair enough. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, so I'll take you back to the, my little story at the start, which is, um, there, so, we're, so we're, a bunch, we're a kind of group of sensible people who are happy with that argument. Outside this room are a group of other scientists who don't recognize this, uh, you know, these insights, and uh, there's a value to engaging with them. So, I think, yeah, so I think that, that, that's what I'm doing. Yeah. But, but doesn't that kind of like lead, kind of build up the ego even more when we call it evidence based policy making? And it could have been yeah. just. Yeah, but you can, you know, within that, um, evidence-based policy making means something very positive to some scientists. Um, but if you want to ridicule that group of people, you use the same term, but it means something else. So you can do that, yeah? You can say, you know, you talk about, you know, if someone says, you know, rational policy making or something, you know, you, know, you think, well, you only use that term to say this doesn't matter. So I only use the term evidence-based policy making to start a discussion about why it doesn't happen. Or to say, well, this really isn't yeah. uh, how you should think about things. Yeah. But sometimes yeah. it does happen, right? It's on occasion. Well, people generate scientific yeah. evidence and then someone makes a decision based on it. Oh, yeah, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, but I think... Uh, no, so like, for example, yeah. like Angela used to be there. Yeah. Her and I did a paper with a student on domestic violence in yeah. Colorado. And, in, and I think in criminology where there's really no like anti or you know, pro-domestic violence coalition or whatever, mm. <laughs> I think a lot of the decision making is based on the evidence they have at hand. Yeah. And why is that? Because you don't have a heterogeneous, diverse group of people clamoring about different views. They just take the evidence, an argument about the, less fewer arguments about the uncertainty. Yeah. And they'll go forward. And, and so in those low conflict situations, yeah, you can see this. But it's in the, but I think what the imagination, I think the image that you, I think 
that you're having, you have is this conflict. And you need to somehow resolve these conflicts, mm -hmm. perhaps. Maybe not. Well, do you want to jump yeah, in? Yeah, I want to jump in about that topic. It's, I don't imagine you follow our politics very closely. Just the Trump stuff. Well, this is, uh, <laughs> this is actually a Trump comment because right. I think it really closely relates to this. Politics as usual has been turned on its head, I think, with Trump. And one of the interesting things is, for example, Mormons, who have very conservative Christian values, are supporting Trump. What? Yes. This is true. And I think this is a, this gets to this kind of issue of how much do people care? Where is the politics and the evidence? Trump doesn't never says anything that's true. He never uses evidence for anything. And he's getting groups of people who historically voted based on values, which is kind of like evidence, right? Um, who are not even caring. So what do we do when politics gets kind of turned on its head? It's kind of like Chris's question in a way because he's saying, you know, kid-based, right? It's just a different lens or a value, right? Um, what do we do when, when politics gets turned on its head and, and suddenly the message is that people don't care what the facts say, they care about something else? It's just an expression of, it's a value expression. Yeah. Well, um, right, so let, well, let me invite you into the series of steps go through there. Um, it's a bit like, um, I mean, I think the answer to all these things is the Riker thing, which is called um, Aristotelis, yeah, which is, I'm taking you through a particular starting point series of steps. You could start at different ones, right? So, but I'm, but since, you know, it's, you've, you've paid me to, to give you my series, right? So, it's, <laughs> so, the starting point, now it does tie in with what you're saying, which is, um, when, when some, some groups of people, some scientists, start off with this image of evidence-based policy, they see these developments and they conclude that we don't have anything of the sort. We have some sort of chaotic, chaotic system where evidence plays no part. And, and, and you know, uh, it's, it's just completely wrong or I have no idea what to do about it. So, if that's your starting point, then a lot of policy studies are valuable because you're saying, well, what you're witnessing is, on the surface, this process, but actually here are some concepts and theories that help you explain what's going on in more depth. So, um, so I mean, a great, a great example there with, um, with any individual politician is, you know, a simple concept like uh, bounded rationality, which is, however forceful their views, they can only pay attention to tiny proportion of government business and even if they're in charge they will be able to do some damage so you, you, know, you can't get away from that but um, most government will take place uh, with, without their knowledge so you say well that's that's one kind of big insight from your know, policy studies the you know the policy process goes on uh, it looks like it's dominated by a small group of individuals but it's too small to manage and so you do have different processes within it that don't accord to that supervision idea, something like that. So, so you might say to, to scientists who are quickly disaffected with the policy process, well actually if you pay more attention to how it works in detail, you can have these opportunities in which to present scientific information, particularly in arenas such as subsystems where 
uh, you know, elected high-profile policymakers play almost no part. That's so, well, they, well, that's good actually, right? Because that's a positive message. I should have started off with that. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I suppose the other question was why privilege scientific evidence up more than anything else? Isn't it something like that? Part, so, part, yeah. well, part of it is yeah. like what it looked like before, and I think yeah. I, I think you're well. But also, I do think there's there are situations where it is used. Yeah. And typically it's used when there's low conflict, when the rules structure the game in such a way that evidence can inform the decision, mm. but the people making the decision uh, um, are clamoring for different types of information. Yeah. Maybe, like, you know, so diverse that they can't agree on what type of information matters. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, so, I mean, that's sort of what I would say. Um, I think anyone outside of these scientific professions would think that uh, they are in a privileged position in the possible So. Uh, health scientists, environmental scientists, however um, dissatisfied they are with their progress, they're actually doing much better than almost anyone else within them. So, yeah, I don't know if anyone buy that, but you know, I think that's. Yeah. Still a reaction to the debate. According, according to what I hear, we are discussing on three different points. Mm -hmm. The first one is about. Uh, Evidence, scientific evidence that has become top argument in some policy sectors. For instance, in the environment, at one moment, the, the science say that asbestos is dramatic for uh, the lung and uh, mm. cause death. Thirty years later, we finally decide to prohibit asbestos. At least in Europe, I don't know yet. Uh, that's a very interesting empirical question to know how how evidence came out, came up at the top argument, for instance, in environmental policy. If you say today, I don't want GMOs because I don't want any type of technology in food, you would be immediately discarded as an ideologist because the debate has been put on risks of GMOs. Are there risks or not risks? Are there evidence from one or the other? And that's very interesting. And it's, it's, it's one of the, the very interesting topics in, uh, in environmental policy. Mm -hmm. The second one, second direction, and the one mentioned is the question of opposition of values against performance. I would talk about Obama. I think it's, I share the value of losing one more, but I think in terms of performance, having such a prison with no rule of law would be very performant. So, with the idea of evidence-based policy-making, we enter, we privilege performance on values, but politics is also mainly on values, and we design policies that are in line with our value, even if we uh, even if it's against the evidence. It's going to be performance. Yeah. And finally, the third line of, of thinking is about prescription of good policy-making. Mm. And I think that the literature advocating evidence-based policy-making it's not about empirical research, it's not about thinking about the role of evidence in the policy making process. They just use a rational argument as a power argument to say, we are going to teach you how to design a good public policy, and I don't see any innovation uh, compared to what uh, Lindblom were denunciating in the, in the late 50s 
about uh, this prescription or how you should do uh, your policy. Mm. And I think the debate is turning around these three axes. And I'm not sure we can study them all together. Your reactions were. Yeah. Well, you can separate them into chapters, right? That's what I'm doing. <laughs> so, uh, but I mean, so, so I think the first point, I think, ties closely with Chrissy's, which is that um, despite protestations, a lot of policy areas are um, underpinned by a sort of technocratic argument which reflects the accumulation of evidence in some areas. So, you, it, so the, and these things might be increasingly invisible to all intents and purposes because some evidence is so powerful because it's just taken for granted. Uh, so, um, I mean, so I, I would find that in, in places like um, tobacco in some countries, you know, the, the, the idea that smoking causes uh, premature mortality and that secondhand smoke causes premature mortality. In many countries, they're just taken for granted. You, you don't go back to first principles and say, well, does smoking cause cancer? You say, given that it does, what's the best way of solving that? And in fact, increasingly in some countries, you take, for, you take solutions for granted. So it's, it's not, um, it's a bit like Peter Hall, you know, so it's not, um, should we introduce these solutions? It's how should we calibrate them? Which is a real uh, uh, sort of victory for sort of public health evidence enthusiasts. However much they are satisfied. Yeah, so I think, yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of um, success stories in that sense. Um, oh, oh no, oh, I almost lost a chain of And I think, well, if we started from a different point, there, you would say, well, evidence is a bit like an idea, you know, it's, a, it's either a policy solution or it's a way of thinking. And an interesting question would be, uh, can you turn evidence into the you know, independent variable that helps explain policy change or something? And then you say, well, you know, a lot, of, a lot of theories are about situating the role of evidence within other causes of policy change. So. So, I mean, an interesting thing for me tends to be, you say, well, often it appears inevitable that some forms of evidence will eventually cause significant policy changes, like tobacco control, but actually it takes particular circumstances and, you know, rules within particular venues for it to So, yeah, lots of interesting stuff. Um, the, the question about good policy making, that is in my final chapter, right? Because I was thinking about that in that, yeah, so evidence-based medicine is, is to all intents and purposes an ideal. We want to produce evidence in a particular way and we want to close the gap between what that tells you about how to behave and how physicians actually behave. Um, and that's much more problematic with the political process where this is much more about how people use information, combine them with their values, interact with each other in a particular way to make decisions that are acceptable and legitimized. So it does seem like a, a very different process. Because the physician, in this case, really is part of a delivery chain to all intents process. They use their discretion, but they don't use their discretion on you know, what's the anatomy of the human body which, which interventions work for this. You know, you're not going to get physicians and say, well, uh, you know, 
smoking causes cancer, but you know, off you go. You know, my values. <laughs> I've got libertarian values. Right? I, I mean, maybe the other physicians do that. It's not to me if you smoke, right? Um, but that, that's different in a, in a policy process. So it does present. I, I think there is a, a significant literature in places like healthcare where people do recognise this different scenario, and they try and work out how to adapt to it. So there are lots of kind of trendy terms that don't really mean much, but uh, there are things like co-production of knowledge, which is we'll produce this scientific evidence, but we want to combine it with a discussion with communities and turn this into policy recommendations, it's like a participatory event or, um, or something else uh, that means that this 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 uh, knowledge turns into something else. It's credible. It's practical. Yeah, so I think there is there is a lot of that stuff about about how to engage. My sense of it, a, a lot of it, is that that process often makes scientists worse off. Um, so I just came across there was this example. One of my colleagues at Sterling was involved in this so-called um, what do you call it? Kind of patient power manifesto or something. Like that. So it was it was a bunch of scientists bringing the evidence. Uh, kind of community, series of community events where people produced a list of what they wanted from their healthcare system. Evidence-based, but also value-based. And they produced this document that said, here's what we want. I mean, the problem in that case was, what they asked for was essentially a socialist health care system. Was, you know, guaranteed free the point of use, tax funded, uh, no inequalities in services and outcomes. So it didn't look any different from the manifesto of a political party, a socialist political party. Yeah. So the aim in some of those cases is to legitimise evidence, turn it into something practical. But in lots of cases, it actually devalues it because you just look like you're another advocate, lobbyist, and you you don't have the resource of objectivity and status to start off with. So yeah. So I think it comes back to again, you can still at the end of it think the best thing for scientists to do is simply maintain their images. Scientists claim policymakers don't do enough with their evidence, and that has an impact, you know, because policymakers don't like to look like they ignore evidence. So, yeah. Uh, uh, I think policymakers are fine. Yeah. They ignore evidence. Maybe, maybe not to not go too far. It depends on the community. It depends on the community, but, but, but clearly, I don't think our problem, if, if the problem is evidence-based, just there's lack, I think the problem is not the fact that we don't have the scientific information. Yeah. It's the fact that it's not acting on. And I don't yeah. think it's the fact of access that decision makers, not like they don't know that these studies don't exist. Someone filters it, right? Mm. And so, it's, so I think there's, it's almost like, I mean, the medicine situation is a good one. Your doctor gives you this information. The doctor doesn't tell you to act on it or not. That's still your choice. Mm. But in between that choice is like your your view of the future, your view of willing to take the risks associated with the medicine, whatever the, the cure might be, 
and all those perverse outcomes and the, the you know all that stuff comes into play. Yeah. And that's that, that seems like that's where that's kind of like the, like I was saying with the nature of the soccer game. There's games going on, but they just choose to ignore the science. Yeah. And maybe for good reasons. So, so throughout this discussion, I kept in my head I, I had uh, demand and supply functions in my head, and to me it seemed I, I almost thought you were going to say that your book was essentially an argument against trying to make scientists care about impact, uh, because essentially you're pushing a demand where there might not be a supply, where there's supplies for mm. political salvo, right? Like you're just looking for evidence to use against somebody else's argument. Oh, well, I think I do like to restrict myself to one piece of advice, right? So yeah, so one is uh, yeah, so one, yeah, but one is yeah, just be more relaxed about your role in the policy process because you're only, you're only one player and provide one source of information. Um, but but another is if you want to be more effective and go beyond just complaining about your lack of impact, here are the kind of strategies you might use. To uh, you know, engage with policymakers, understand the ways in which they think, and try and uh, either adapt to them or manipulate some of them. Yeah, yes, you can go both ways. But, yeah. Not all within the ironic context that I have no impact on the policy process myself. <laughs> Any other questions for Paul? Please, thank you again for coming. Paul's here for another 48 hours or so.